0: following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. If you ever doubted the reality of miracles, I would say to you this morning that for a few minutes in this room, the entire front row was full on a Sunday morning service, okay? So thank you all you have proved the reality of God this morning, right here. I'm even backing up a little bit because I don't know how to handle this, so it's not. I'm not used to that. If you will turn to Mark chapter four, Mark chapter four, um, it is very important this morning that you turn to it, that you that you have it on your phone or you have your Bible with you, page number eight hundred thirty nine. If you're using one of those Bibles in the seats there in front of you, I will have it up on the screen here. So if you absolutely can't or just used to, you'll still have it there uh, in front of you. You know, sometimes as a parent, you feel like uh, you say a lot of things to your children, and you wonder if they're really listening, right? You, And every now and then, though, you'll have that moment where they'll say something back to you, or they'll do something, and you'll be like, oh, they are listening. Like, they heard it. Like, they didn't act like they were hearing it along the way, But, but you see in that moment that they do. I got to admit, I feel that way sometimes as a Pastor, as a teacher, like you say a lot of words. I say so many words. I don't even know what I say half the time. And people are like, "Remember when you said this?" I'm be like, "Nope, not a clue. I don't remember that at all." So, but you you also wonder like, people hear what I say. Well, this week you guys confirmed that you do listen, and I want to thank you for that because throughout the course of this past week, I cannot tell you how many of you via uh, in person phone call uh, phone calls. I don't think I got any texts, but I don't remember for sure. Commented on my great love of sweet tea. Thank you for listening last week. I appreciate that. Uh, if, I had a, if I had drank a gallon of sweet tea for every comment I got about that, I would have been in the bathroom all week long, I thought. Um, you weren't here last week. I was commenting on... I was trying to explain hyperbole, what hyperbole is. That's a, a rhetorical device where you use exaggeration for effect. So you exaggerate something for the purpose of making a point. And as an example, an illustration of that, I said jokingly that... If I said to you that I love sweet tea more than anything else in the world, then obviously that's a lie, right? Because that's not true. I love a lot of other things more than sweet tea, but yeah, that's what people picked up on. And so I decided, and you guys paid me to do this this week, I decided to put together a complete list of the drinks I like, not necessarily in order, but at least by context, okay? So that if I come to your home or we're together in various situations, you will know how to properly respond. So we will begin, there's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of these, ready. One, if it's any kind of like a a nicer dinner, I do prefer sweet tea, that is my, like Jamie and I are going to make steak and stuff like that, I don't want to drink a Coke, I want sweet tea, that's like the formal drink for me there. Uh, If it's more of an informal kind of meal, you know, or sandwiches, burgers, stuff like that, I love Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper, by far the best soda, I heard an amen, so I love whoever said that. If I'm flying, though, I don't prefer Dr. Pepper. I prefer ginger ale, okay? That's the only context I really prefer ginger ale. If I'm sick, I prefer Coke. Uh, if I'm on vacation in Asheville, North Carolina, I prefer wine. If I'm eating nabs, and I'm going to pause on that one and ask a question, and I want you to answer honestly. How many of you know what nabs are? Raise your hand. Shh, don't say it out loud. Just raise your hand that you know what nabs are. Okay, you can put your hands down. This is the distinguishing line between people who understand southern culture and people who don't, right there. Because if you don't know what nabs are, you might have lived in the south, you might call yourself southern, you are not southern. If you know what they are, then you are southern. If I'm eating a pack of nabs, nothing pairs better with a pack of nabs than a Mountain Dew uh, by far. If it's breakfast... I, I drink coffee, but I prefer iced milk. So this <laughs> I get that reaction every time. I, uh, this goes back to my childhood, I think. You know, things that impact you as a kid when I was in daycare or early elementary. And uh, it'd be snack time or lunchtime, and you get those little waxy cartons of milk to drink, you know what I'm talking about? And if you got one that had been like a little too far back in the fridge, it had formed those ice crystal-y things inside. And when you drink it, you're like you're crunching your milk. I loved that. I loved that. That was like, you know, it was like finding gold. I'm like, Eureka, I got the milk. I'm so happy. So to this day, I put ice in my milk purposefully to drink it. Only one in my house who does that. And finally, if I'm working outside, uh, don't bring me Gatorade. I'll just take water. That's perfectly fine for me. So there you go. Now. You all know all of my drink choices in any uh, context. However, I did realize if I was flying to Asheville, but I was sick, I don't know what you'd give me. Uh, eating a pack of nabs on the plane, it would be very confusing, but apart from that, we're good. Uh, let me explain what we're going to do this morning, because uh, I don't do this very often, though I have done this a few times over the years as we've been working, as we work through Genesis. I know I did it a couple of times, that I don't think I've done it yet in Mark. I want to read a really long passage of scripture to us today. I want to read all of chapter 4, all of chapter 5, and the first six verses of chapter 6. Now, I'm not doing this to waste our time, and I won't do this again in the weeks ahead just because it won't be necessary, but for today, it will be really beneficial for us if we can read this entire chunk together in one setting in order to understand what Mark is doing here as he ties some different things together And so it's going to be long. I apologize in advance. That's why I want you to look into something so you can follow along a little easier. But we're going to read through it all. When we get done, we will pray and spend a few minutes together uh, considering what we have read and why I am doing this with us. If you will, please look at Mark chapter 4, verse 1, and we will begin. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil and When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, "'Let us go across to the other side.' And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, "Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith?" And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, "Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him?" They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, <clears throat> excuse me, they met him there. Met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And They were afraid. And Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Kalitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get such, get these things? And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Father, I pray that you will, this morning, remove all distractions from our hearts and minds. Help us to focus in this morning on your word and to think very carefully about what we are seeing unfold right here before us in this long passage that we read this morning. I thank you, Lord, and I I praise you even now that your word is powerful and that as we study it and see what you do through it, it just, it is amazing to watch. It's amazing to watch you at work as, as you have revealed yourself to us in ways that are so far above and beyond our comprehension. And yet in your grace, you have made yourself available to us through your word. And so we can comprehend it to some extent. And Lord, it's in light of that that we come this morning and we ask that your spirit open our eyes to understand, open our hearts to comprehend, speak to us, convict us, show us what we need to know here this morning. And Father, as we go out, I pray that our lives would be lived with the clear proof, the clear evidence that we have indeed believed the gospel of this kingdom that you have come to proclaim. And so, Lord, may that be true for each of us individually, and may that be true for us corporately. Please prick our hearts and consciences with that very idea this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to use our time together this morning as sort of, but not really, um, a transition time today. If you've been here at all over the last few weeks, you know that what we've been doing uh, over the last probably four, five, six weeks now is we've been working through this passage here in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 34, and just trying to understand what it is that Jesus is doing as he's giving these parables about the kingdom of God. And we've been studying that and working through it. And we finished that really last week, and now we're getting ready to move into this next section, which begins in chapter 4, verse 35, and we'll go all the way to chapter 6, verse 6. And so there's a part of me that wants to take today and use it just as, just as a transition-type message. And, and I am going to do that to some extent because I think it's helpful. I think one of the problems that we run into as we study Scripture is that we tend to lose sight of the big picture the big story that's unfolding here mark isn't just recording a series of little disconnected vignettes that we're supposed to learn from separately he's he's got a bigger plan that he's tying together and to the extent that we can keep that plan in mind i think it it aids us in our study of scripture and so i like i like doing these kinds of messages for that purpose just to keep us together with mark and what he's trying to do and yet On the other hand, today, as I studied this particular transition, I recognize that there are some things here, though, that are a little different than some of the transitions we've done in the past. Because there are some components of what's going on here in in this particular section and how Mark is piecing them together that actually teach us something about how God works at a much higher level and then has a direct implication and application on us as we go out and try to live this thing that we call the Christian life. So does that make any sense? I, I don't even know what you would really define today's message as. It's not going to be completely transitioned. It's not completely looking at these larger truths. I've kind of like mixed them up. I think I'm mixed up, so I don't know. I hope it I hope it works, but my my heart and my my mind have been just convicted by these things I've seen this week here in in this transition uh, uh, section that we're in, and I just want to share that with you today, if I can. So, let's start by just reminding ourselves of of where we have been up to this point in Mark's gospel. And I mean, like, all the way back. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but just to tie it all back together for us. We began, if you'll recall, in Mark 1 with that prologue, that those first 13 verses where Mark just simply kind of lays out the point of his overall book. And as you see in verse 1 of Mark 1, he is writing to us about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as I worked through that, I gave you this little a phrase to remember from the prologue that Jesus is going to be shown throughout the whole gospel of mark he's going to be shown as the promise fulfilling spirit bringing sin and death defeating son of God. Does anyone even remember that that was said? okay that was a long way back, and after we got past the prologue, you get into like the real meat of mark's gospel with a whole section that 's given over to the introduction of Jesus, and that went from chapter one verse fourteen all the way to verse 45. It took up the rest of chapter 1. And in that section, I shared with us that Mark is just introducing certain components of of who Jesus is. Jesus the person, Jesus the man, who is he? And I I really was impressed as I was reflecting back on that this week, if I asked you to give me four or five bullet points that define Jesus, (laughs) you realize how hard that would be? And yet that's basically what Mark is doing in that first section. He's giving us some bullets, some, some big picture ideas to define that. So he tells us about the message of Jesus in, in Mark 1, 14 and 15, that he came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And the further we get into Mark, the more significant I see that opening comment as being, he talked to us a little bit about the plan of Jesus, how he was going to call his disciples. He's going to work through sinful men to spread this message of the gospel and of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. We saw about the power and authority of Jesus as he teaches that day in the synagogue, as he cast out a demon from the man who's there in the service, as he then goes home and he heals Peter's mother-in-law and others that evening. We learned about the heart of Jesus, how he's loving, he's humble, he's gracious. and all of these things, you get a quick snapshot. That's all it is in that first section. Just a quick snapshot of who this man, this person that Mark is writing about, really and truly is. And he then take goes from that into those five scenes of controversy that we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 6. You remember those? Where you begin to see then how this man, Jesus, who is claiming to be the Son of God, doesn't live up to any of the expectations of the people around him in terms of what the Son of God would do, be, act like, etc. He doesn't meet any of their expectations. There's some theological expectations where, where he's in this room and the, paral- uh, the four friends bring the paralytic and drop him through the roof and he sees this and he says, okay, son, your sins are forgiven. And all the Pharisees in the room are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Only God can forgive sins. You remember that story? And I, and I pointed out to you then that, They're right, right? Their theology is sound. The problem is is they don't have a right theology of who Jesus is. They don't see him as God, and so his response is fine. You you think it's uh, easy to say your sins are forgiven? Would it be easier to say, rise, take up your bed, and go home? Okay, rise, take up your bed, go home. And he proves in that moment that he is God. That his he is uh, their theology isn't quite right. That they need to see him in a different light. He uh, dealt with some personal expectations and and really stirred up a controversy when he called Levi the tax collector to be one of his disciples. And and then to make it worse, afterwards Levi throws the the, the cookout right, and he's got all his uh, tax collector and sinner friends over. And what does Jesus do? He shows up. He brings his disciples, and they sit there, and they have dinner with this group of people that everyone else around him in this culture looks down upon. And the controversy is, why are you there? How could you even be associated with these kind of people? And Jesus says, hey, I didn't, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the, the sinners. If you're, if you're well, you don't need a physician. Only the sick need a physician, and he has come to be a physician to the sick. And so he violates their personal expectations. He violates their religious expectations. Because in that day, fasting is seen as like one of the primary uh, modes of religion, one of the primary things you do as a religious person. And yet he and his disciples aren't fasting, and the reason is because he's there. How can they mourn? He violates their cultural expectations because he doesn't really care about all their Sabbath laws that they themselves have placed over God's law. And so his disciples violate it. He himself violates it by healing the man with the withered hand. You see all of these expectations that Jesus isn't meeting. And then Mark ends, I think this is kind of like a big section that's kind of over all of that, by showing us some responses to Jesus there in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. Some people look at who Jesus is as a person, they, they hear his message, they see his plan, they, they see his power, they see his heart, they, they observe how he reacts in all of these scenes where there's controversy going on, and they take all of that and they say, this guy must be the son of God. And so Jesus calls 12 of those people to be his apostles, and, and we know those as the 12 disciples. Others, though, unfortunately, many more, look at all those same things and they do not believe that this big section that started back in chapter 1, verse 14, and goes all the way to the end of chapter 3, it ends with a rejection of Jesus that is based in unbelief. You've got the religious leaders who were rejecting him, saying he's possessed by Satan himself. That's how he cast out the demons. You've got his family rejecting him, saying he's crazy. But but this is what we've got. This is where we were for for. Weeks and weeks and weeks looking at how Mark has put that together. Well, we started a new section, right? Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 34, where we've been the last few weeks. And here we have this collection of parables that have been put together. And they're not complicated. They're they're actually very, very simple once you understand what to do with them. And all of them are here to teach us some important truths about the kingdom of God that Jesus has been announcing since all the way back in chapter 1. Because as he goes around and he announces, hey guys, the kingdom is at hand, the time is fulfilled, you need to repent and believe. All the people hearing him, I think, are expecting something very different than what Jesus intends by that. Their expectation of the kingdom is, as I have said multiple times, and we'll say at least one more time this morning, is like fireworks and, and big stuff and coming prince and power and glory and the submission of everyone to his will and the righting of all wrongs. And, you know, the funny thing is, I haven't really emphasized this yet, but the funny thing is, all those expectations are right. Their timing is wrong. That, that, they expect all of that at the beginning of the kingdom when God apparently expects all of that at the end, because all that stuff is going to come. But it's not how God had intended for it to begin. And how and so, so what Jesus is doing in these parables is he's trying to help them understand how the kingdom is coming. And so first you saw in the parable of the sower that not everyone is going to accept and submit to the kingdom, right? You're going to share the message of the kingdom with some, and it's as if nothing happened. The seed is snatched away. You share it with, with others, and they hear it, and they seemingly respond, but as soon as things get difficult, they're out of here. There's no root. There's nothing really there. Just a looks like a response, but they're gone. You, others you're going to share it with, and they're going to hear and respond, and yet there's no fruit. And I'll just pause and make a little side remark on that point. Those are the ones that leave me scratching my head. So just practically like, I don't know what to do with those people. Are they... Is there, real, is there really something there and just no fruit? Or, but if there's no fruit, how can there really be something there? You feel that tension at that point. And you don't quite know what to do with it. And I still don't know what to do with it, nor do I think that's what Jesus is even trying to get at. However, I think it's a right question for us to, to at least ask and, and think about. These people hear, they respond, but they show no fruit. So practically, there's no benefit. Yet there will be some, some who will hear they will respond. They will show fruits of faith and repentance, and that's the guarantee of the success of the kingdom. There will be fruit. There will be response. There will be growth. Second, we saw in the parable of the seed growing that all of that is God's doing, not ours, right? So, so as, as good farmers, we go out and sow, and we have, to, we have to reap at the end, but recognize that in all the work of the important stuff of actual growth, none of that is ours. We don't understand even how it works, but, but God causes this growth to happen. That's why Jesus says, I will build my church because this is his work and only excuse me, only he can do it. And then third, we saw in the parable of the mustard seed that while it may not start out very impressive, this stuff can turn into something almost unimaginably different than how it began. So you look at Jesus, two dozen, three dozen ragtag followers he's got, fishermen and tax collectors in Galilee. Can you picture that 2,000 years later and see us? Not at that moment you can't. <laughs> Not even close. It doesn't even look like a, 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 a bad like club. I mean, it's just like, it's pathetic. But yeah, here we are 2,000 years later and the gospel has spread all over the world. And right now, this morning, there are people around this globe worshiping him. Couldn't have pictured that then. You see that even personally, and I hope you were encouraged by that, that sometimes the seeds of the gospel seem so small and insignificant when first planted in the heart, but recognize that they are the power of God, and in time they can grow into all different ways to show themselves through our lives, and sometimes you wish it grew faster. Sometimes you wish it grew more in certain areas versus others, but they will grow the The gospel is God's power. So so what we had in this first section then, this is what I'm getting at, is a proclamation of the kingdom, right? It's the kingdom explained. It's the word of the kingdom that Jesus is here announcing publicly beside the sea for everyone to hear. And now in this next section that we're getting ready to go into, we're going to move from the proclamation of the kingdom to the proof of the kingdom. If you look kind of just quickly, and I'm not going to put anything up here behind me just because we're going to move quickly, but I want you just looking down. If you look in in this next section, chapter 4, verse 35, to chapter 6, verse 6, you'll notice that it's made up of three stories and a conclusion. Three stories and a conclusion. The story number one in chapter 4, verse 35 is the story of Jesus calming the sea. And we all know that one if you grew up in Sunday school, right? Because here he is asleep in the boat, and there's a storm, and they're scared. And they're like, Jesus, don't you care about us? Wake up. And he's like... Peace, be still. What's wrong with you guys? And everyone, all the disciples in the boat are like, who is this guy? Which is a weird question. I can't wait to talk about that a little bit. Who is this guy? They're they're afraid of him because the wind and the sea obey him. In chapter five, verse one, you see the story of Jesus casting out uh, the demons from the man who had the legion. So he's there and the tombs is where he lives and he's some of the other texts say he's naked and and he's like a crazy wild man. He's a danger to everyone, <laughs> and Jesus comes on the scene and subdues him like that. Chains couldn't hold him before. He breaks shackles, metal handcuffs in pieces, and yet Jesus, with a word, casts the demons out. Chapter five, verse twenty-one. You see the story of Jesus raising Jairus's daughter from the dead, and. The woman with the issue of blood—what's that called, folks? An intercalation. It's mixed. It's the, the the woman with the issue is in the middle of Jairus's daughter. This is a story. This is another intercalation where Jesus is going to to not only raise a dead girl—something we haven't yet seen in Mark's gospel—but but even his clothes seem to have the power to heal. What, what's this? I would just point out to you a few things that all of these stories have in common so that you can understand what Mark is doing. Note number one that all of these stories are really like over the top. And you just think about these three and what they have in common. In story one, you have a storm that is so violent that seasoned sailors are terrified for their life. Like, I don't know what their normal fishing job experience is like, but I can't believe that if you're a, a fisherman on a sea, a body of water as large as the Sea of Galilee, that you've never been in a storm before, caught unaware. They don't have radar. They're not checking their smartphones, so they don't know what's coming. You can't tell me they've never been in a storm, and yet the way Mark writes this, it's like there's a hurricane on the Sea of Galilee, and they're terrified. They are like out of their minds scared. In the second story, you don't just have a demon-possessed guy you have a guy who says, according to what the demon says, he's possessed by a legion of demons. I mean, Jesus has dealt with demon-possessed people before. The, the first guy we saw is so under control that he can actually go to the synagogue surface, right? He's like there, he's hanging out, he's got his clothes on, and, and he's like asking questions, he's talking, and then all of a sudden like Jesus goes, hey, you got a demon, we got to deal with this problem. This guy is like, if, if this is like normal demon-possessed, I don't know how to define that, but if that's normal... This guy's like somewhere down maybe close to Farm Fresh. Like, it's over the top, and yet Jesus handles it no problem. In the third story, we've seen Jesus take care of people with fevers and other diseases, and this time the girl's dead. He's dead by the time Jesus gets there, and that's nothing. <laughs> Little girl, get up. She gets up. Even in the other story of the, of the woman with the issue of blood, she's not even trying to talk to Jesus. She wants to touch his clothing. Do you see what I'm saying when I talk about the over-the-top nature of each of these stories? Each one is being put forward in a way that almost like they're a little different than your average run-of-the-mill miracle, right? I mean, these are, these are huge. Notice also that not only are they all over-the-top, but they are all filled with dangers in three specific realms of reality. In the first story, there is a danger in what I'm calling the natural realm. So there's a danger from the outside, from, from the storm, from the elements. And, and it's, it's placing the disciples in such danger that they feel like they're going to die. In the second story, you've got a danger in the spiritual realm, a guy who is so overcome by the forces of evil that he has, he's out of his mind. He's out in the tombs cutting himself, doing all these crazy things. The third story, you've got like the ultimate danger in the physical realm, right? Death itself that it has come to attack this little girl in the story. And Jesus handles all of those. And in doing so, you see three themes begin to develop. So three over-the-top stories, three dangers and three realms and three themes then to develop. Number one, the theme of death is present in every single story. Think about it. In the first story, they're afraid of dying from the storm. In, in the second story, the, the demon guy lives in the tombs. He lives in the graveyard. It's like he lives in the realm of death. He's an eternal, not eternal, but a, a living death. In the third story, the girl actually dies. Death is present in each of these three scenes. Not only that, number two, you see the theme of desperation and amazement outlined in each, in each story. In the storm, the disciples are so desperate, they're like yelling at Jesus and accusing him of not even caring about their lives. I mean, would you accuse Jesus of not caring about whether you live or die? You got to be pretty desperate, I think, to accuse Jesus of that. And and they clearly are. And then after he, he, he stops the storm, what are they doing? <gasps> Who is this guy? Amazement sets in. The same with the second situation. You have this demon guy who, he sees Jesus and runs to him. Well, if I've got, I don't know how many demons in me, a legion of demons in me, I think I might be desperate too. And once Jesus casts them out, everyone around them is amazed by the transformation. Even even in the last story, the desperation of a father who comes to him and says, Jesus, my little girl is on the... It's on the brink of death, and dads picture this if you have a daughter. Can you imagine the desperation that would be in your heart if you came to Jesus at that moment when your child is on the brink of death and you know it and you're begging him to come? And then think of the frustration you'd have as he stops and deals with a woman who touched his clothes. I mean, just like it's it would almost be comical if it wasn't so serious. And then to hear that someone comes and says, Forget it, don't bother him, she's gone. The heart. that that desperation that is present in the situation. Even the woman, with the the issue of blood, the desperation she feels after having spent all of her her money, her time, these years trying to be healed, only then to be amazed when it actually works. (laughs) And she's healed to, to see the amazement of the crowds when they see the little girl get up. This theme keeps repeating in each story. And then number three, the third theme is the theme of fear and faith. That is present in each one. In the storm, of course, the disciples are afraid. And after he stops it, what's the question to them? Don't you have any faith? Have you still no faith, he says? And then they're more afraid of him. In the the demon story, the demon-possessed guy, everyone's afraid of him. The demons are afraid of Jesus. And and the demon guy, after he believes, he he wants to follow Jesus. He wants to come after him. And Jesus says, no, you stay here. And the people are like, well, you don't. Please leave. They're afraid of Jesus too now. Get out of here. In the sickness and death story, the father, he's afraid that, that his daughter's going to die. The woman who, who comes and touches his garment after Jesus says, who who, who touched me? She's afraid, it says in the text. It, she comes and tells Jesus the whole truth. And what is his response to her? Your faith has made you well. What does he say to the, to the father after they come and say, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. He says, do not fear, only believe. Fear, faith, fear, faith. It just keeps repeating, cycling over and over. What I think Mark is doing here with these three particular, over-the-top, obviously connected stories from these three realms is he's showing us that the message of the kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming in chapter 4 is real. The proof is in his victory in all of these things. By conquering in each realm, by by handling the most over-the-top situation, it shows us some proof that, that this man, Jesus, isn't full of just talk. That the kingdom is real and that he is, in fact, the one who brings the kingdom. It's not coming from someone else or from somewhere else. It's in him. And you see that developed over and over through these three stories, that the kingdom is real, that God's rule and reign is really at hand, and so what should we do mark 1, 14 and fifteen, we should repent and believe the gospel, and yet yet notice notice before i I make our application here that just like in that first big section where, where mark one fourteen to the end of chapter three. In that first big section, you had who Jesus is, you have some controversy, and then you have a response, right? There's word, there's or there's proclamation, there's proof, there's response. You have a response of Jesus, to Jesus at the end here in, in, in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, because there Jesus goes back home to Nazareth for a visit, and despite everything he said and everything he's done, what do the people in his hometown do? They don't believe. They don't believe. They take offense at him, Mark writes, and he now marvels at their unbelief. An interesting flip in what's been going on here. You see the pattern? Proclamation, proof, response. Proclamation, proof, response. And this was what was so convicting to me and encouraging and everything this week is this is how God works. If you step back and take a larger view of just how God works throughout the scriptures and in this world, you recognize that, that proclamation is, is almost always, if not always, followed by proof. And so you think back to, for example, just a couple of quick ones, Moses, right? God says, hey, Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. This is the message, the proclamation. What does he give him? Proof. Hey, you got a staff, throw it on the ground, this will happen. If he doesn't listen, I got 10 signs for him. It's not going to be good if he doesn't listen. Hopefully, he'll listen. Of course, he doesn't because that's the response hardening his heart, rejection. And only at the end does he let the people go, but at great cost to him. Think of the prophets, almost any of the prophets of the Old Testament. Think of Elijah. He goes with a message. Here's the message you need to repent to the king, to Israel, to the foreign nation, whatever. What does he do? He provides proof. This is the proof that God's message is real. And then there's a response. Do you accept? Do you reject? It's not actually that complicated. <laughs> proclamation-proof response. And this paradigm of proclamation-proof response, it directly applies to us today. You think about the gospel and what, what, how it is supposed to be shown in our lives. The, the, the New Testament writers go out of their way to affirm over and over again that salvation is not based in any way on what? Works, right? Okay? So you've got Ephesians 2, 8, 9. With grace, you've been saved through faith. We all know it because we memorized it in Sunday school. It's only of faith. It's not of works. We all get that. And regularly we forget the next verse. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Proclamation should be leading to proof. It should be be leading to proof our our faith our salvation our acceptance of the word our acceptance of the gospel is designed by god to show itself through works and signs that that's just the paradigm and if you think, think of james 2 i didn't put it up here because it's just so long what is what is james getting at in, in james chapter 2 listen faith without works is dead you say you believe the message proclaimed, and yet there's no proof? It's worthless, and who is his example of people who be- hear the message and believe it, and yet show no works? Demons. <laughs> the demons believe and tremble. They have a full understanding and acceptance of the truthfulness of the message proclaimed, and yet there is no repentance no change no no change of course no new direction no works to accompany said belief and it is to them worthless this is just the paradigm that God has put out for us that proclamation the acceptance of the word preached should always be followed by works so I thought this week of a of an illustration an example that I heard years ago and I have no clue who it belongs to I'd give them credit but Think of this: If Christianity were outlawed today, against the law to be a Christian, and, and the police come in and they round us all up and they take us to to jail and they are, you know press charges and we go to court, and now we're at, we're on trial that day in court. We're we're seated seated in the the courtroom. Could the could the prosecution bring anybody? To testify against you, that you are in fact a Christian. You were arrested because you were seated in here. But can they like call up your your coworkers and be like, "Hey, um, you know, get any proof for this guy?" Well, yeah, I mean, man, he is different than us. He doesn't laugh at the things we laugh at. He doesn't talk about the things we talk about. He's he's like a servant. Is there anybody in your office, your ship, your workplace at all who could in any way give testimony to the fact that you are a Christian? Anyone in your neighborhood? Would any of the other people on your street be like, oh, yeah, they're totally a Christian family? I mean, we see it all the time in the way they treat one another, the way they do this and that. Is there anyone who, is there anyone even in your own household? could they call your husband your wife your children would any of them be able to give any evidence to the fact that you are a believer the message we proclaim the message we say we believe in should be accompanied by signs that befit it how can we go out and proclaim to the world that god loves them when we don't how can we go out and proclaim to the world that god is gracious when we are not, how can we go out and tell the world that God is willing to forgive sins when we hold the sins of others against them all the time? Do you see why this was convicting to me? Because proclamation should be followed by proof. And How much better would it be? How much better would it be if we could just not, not just proclaim the gospel, but then show it to the people around us? To provide them with proof of it. We can do that, then the response is up to God. I can't I can't control the response, right? I can sow and I can reap but in the in the middle that's that's God's doing. I, I, I can't do this. but if if I'm proclaiming a message that I, I'm not illustrating in my own life then I'm I'm wondering where my heart is. And so I I encourage you this morning and I'll end with this. let's not fall short on showing the proof of the message that we say we believe. And if you're here today and, and you would claim to be a believer, but there is no proof by, from anyone around, no one could give testimony to the fact that you are, in fact, a Christian, then it's kind of like that soil, the seed growing in the soil with no fruit. It leaves me scratching my head. I can't tell you you're not a believer. I, I don't know. There's no evidence that you are. That's a problem. I, don't be there. Don't be there. Let's strive, live, to show proof of this message that we say we believe. Will you bow your heads with me quickly? God, as we begin to transition from this section we've been into, this one we're going into, Lord, I just pray that you will help us to give careful, real thought to our own hearts and lives. that, That the proclamation of the gospel, the entrance of the gospel into someone's life it's always evidenced by fruit. And, and even here we see this as you come and proclaim this message and then show proof that it's true, that it's real, that there's power in it. This demands a response. And Lord, I, maybe the reason that so many of the people around us don't respond to the gospel is because they don't see it in us. I, I don't know. May that not be the case, Lord. Please, Father, help us to live lives that show the truthfulness of the message. We say we believe, that we sing about, that we, that we proclaim. And to the extent that we don't, Father, will you help us to repent, help us to believe, to respond then in ways that are worthy of this message that you have come to proclaim, that you have given your very life for. I pray, Father, for every person in this room, that if anyone in here today is uncertain as to whether or not there's any proof in their life that they are a believer, that as We have quoted so many times from Augustine that they will find no rest until they find that rest in you alone. And to the extent we can help them, Lord, and come around them, please give us those opportunities. So, God, we give ourselves to you now. We thank you for your word and its power. Help us to have lives filled with proof this week in Jesus' name.